1968, John Carlos and Tommy Smith won Olympic gold and bronze in the men's 200-metre sprint. As they stood on the podium, each raised a black-gloved fist in solidarity with civil rights protesters and scandalised the folks back home. As they created one of the most iconic moments in sporting history, the commentary on American TV noted, there were some boos in the crowd. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, as we prepare for an Olympic Games like no other, we look at diversity in sport and ask, how far have we come since those civil rights protests at the 1968 Games? Does sport bring us together or merely perpetuate the divisions in society? Sports can have the power to unify the world, but it also can be used to perpetuate myths about black men or about black women. We speak to the first former NBA player to come out publicly as gay on the racist response to England's loss at the Euro 2020 final. When the players take a knee and Gareth Southgate eloquently describes why, and yet people still boo, why are we surprised when the dogs show up? And we hear from this black athlete who's broken into the elite level of a predominantly white sport and will cycle for South Africa at the Tokyo Olympics. I'd love to really encourage a lot of kids in the townships to take on cycling. It's, it's a beautiful sport and especially I think it would really be nice to see black girls in cycling. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with a look at diversity, race and racism in sport. Dignity is not a finite resource. It is one of the few things in this world that when you take some of yours and give it to someone else, everybody has more. This is Radio Davos. Back in 1968, when sprinters Carlos and Smith made their stand, the civil rights protests were at their height, but it was by no means the last time that athletes used their spotlight to make a political point. At the Euro soccer tournament, which just ended, the multi-ethnic England team took the knee in support of Black Lives Matter before every match. Like in 1968, that also drew some boos from parts of the crowd. And then, when England lost the final to Italy in the penalty shootout with black players failing to score, social media lit up with racist abuse. On this episode, we're asking, does sport unite us or divide us? We'll hear from a university professor who's researched the links between sport and racism, and from a black African athlete who's heading to Tokyo to compete in a largely white sport at the Olympics. But first... John Amici knows a thing or two about diversity and prejudice in sport. Born to an English mother, a Nigerian father in the US, he grew up in England before his prowess in basketball brought him back to the States where he played at the top of the game in the NBA. In 2007, he became the first former NBA player to come out as gay. My colleague Alex Court interviewed John Amici, who's now a psychologist and leadership coach, for our sister podcast, Meet the Leader. Look out for that episode coming soon. And Alex took the opportunity to ask him about the Euro 2020 aftermath and the wider issue of diversity in sport. Sports is not inclusive. It's exclusive by definition. Should it embrace more diversity in the broadest sense? Yeah, absolutely it should. This doesn't mean that you have to find more white sprinters for example, but it does mean we need to embrace the fact that there are a lot of great white sprinters who never make it through because there are people out there who imagine they couldn't possibly compete because they're white, just in the same way that there's a reason why hockey uh, as a sport is white and, and not black, and it's nothing to do with talent. It's to do with finance and class. But sport is not inclusive. Sport 
is an empty vessel. It does exactly what we make it do. And specifically, you know, drawing on your on your years from the NBA, do you have any specific thoughts on the situation within the NBA? Within the NBA, as within all sports leagues, we just need to remember that there is they aren't a homogenous thing, right? So players are not the same as back office, as the same as front office, as the same as marketing. So the experience of being included for me inside teams, even as a gay person, was very different than the experience I had with owners. Owners gave me very clear messages that queerness was not acceptable. My teammates, they gave me very different messages that they, they loved me even if they didn't understand. And that's what people need to, to recognize. If a sport is racist, it's not because just of the athletes. You have to look higher and lower and around football with all that's gone on in the in the last days with racism and violence around the final game, the European final game. That isn't just about the fans. That's a product of the lack of action, the, the kind of rhetorical nature of things. It's exactly what football wants itself to be. I have to press you on that. I mean, we have just seen England lose to Italy in the final of the Euro Cup and then some very distressing scenes in the UK, online as well. As a black person, as a former professional sportsman, what is your view on that? And, and how do you feel we can we can change some of those behaviours? So it's, this is not to obviate the people who have misbehaved of, of their responsibility. That's not my point. They, they are people who have done, made incredibly poor decisions and have wounded on purpose and cruelly others around them who are different, sometimes physically and sometimes their violence is discursive not physical. However, this is exactly what you'd expect. When the FA or Pretty Patel or anybody else says, oh, this is terrible, this is not what England stands for, I don't know what they're talking about. Because I've been stopped and searched at least three times every year of my life since I was 16 years old. This is exactly what England stands for. This violence that's happening. Why are people who are dog whistlers surprised when the dogs show up? When the players take a knee and Gareth Southgate eloquently describes why, and yet people still boo, why are we surprised when the dogs show up? Why are we surprised when violence erupts? This has been going on for the years. Gordon Allport, post-World War II, American psychologist, was trying to understand how a country as progressive as Germany descended into the extermination of subsets of its people. I mean, most people don't realize how progressive Germany was before that. And so Gordon Allport came up with his antilocution scale. And his antilocution scale essentially said that you go from antilocution, which is a wonderful old fashioned word for bad mouthing. And that leads to avoidance, which leads to subtle aggression, the, you know, saying bad things under your breath. Think about the terrible things people say online, which leads to physical attack, which leads to extermination. That's all Port's anti-locution scale. And we have seen it played out writ large in British society, but not just since Brexit. My entire life, this is who we are. What changes that is deciding that who we are isn't good enough. I just wish people would realize, leaders would realize that I know that resources are scarce, right? Resources are scarce. And so we fall into the trap of believing because money is supposedly finite and oil is finite and gold is finite. They think that dignity is finite. And so a group of people who have lots of dignity 
tell a group of people who have just a sliver of it that those people over there are coming for your dignity. And if we just could understand that dignity is not a finite resource, it is one of the, the few things in this world that when you take some of yours and give it to someone else, everybody has more. John Amechi. A bit of acronym busting for you in case you don't know. The FA is the Football Association, the organisation that governs soccer in England. And Pretty Patel is the UK Home Secretary who criticised the England team for taking the knee, calling it gesture politics. John Amechi was speaking to Alex Court and you can find an extended interview on Meet the Leader. Subscribe to that wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Laurie Martin is a sociology professor at Louisiana State University who studies the role race and education play in sports. I spoke to her about the England team taking a knee, where it came from and what impact she thought it had. There's been a a long-standing tradition of Black athletes in particular using their positions uh, to draw attention to social justice issues. And so we've seen this uh, done in a number of ways. We can go back to, of course, the 1968 um, Olympics in Mexico City, where we had uh, Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos, who decided that they were going to raise their fists in the air on the podium in a protest to racial injustices and social injustices uh, more broadly. And then we had uh, other athletes across time who have used their platform, most famously um, Muhammad Ali. And we can think about um, his contemporaries uh, as well, including Jim Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Thinking about Colin Kaepernick in uh, 2016, where he decided that he was going to take a knee in protest during the national anthem. And as you uh, may well know, it's customary for people to stand uh, during the national anthem. And many people connect the national anthem with the military and with patriotism, uh, even though, um, you know, that's a that's a whole nother uh, discussion. But it is a moment when people are all engaged in the same activity. They're, um, you know, focused on one uh, point. They're focused on the flag. And so uh, the purpose of, you know, any protest, as Martin Luther King has famously said, is to uh, disrupt you know, business as usual and to force people to be uncomfortable and to create a sense of crisis. And so that's what many of these athletes, uh, professional athletes, as well as college athletes are doing when they decide to take a knee. And so we have seen that this is happening not just uh, in the U.S., but it's happening, as you mentioned, uh, across the globe where, you know, people are recognizing that uh, issues related to race and to social uh, inequalities in general is not just an American thing, but it's a, a part of a global problem. Do you think we're going to see more of it at the Olympics? I think that will depend upon how, um, if the if one person decides to do it, uh, and then how the Olympic Committee decides to respond. Uh, so we already saw, for example, the experiences of people like um, uh, Gwen Berry and how she has uh, been harmed uh, because of her efforts to shed light on social justice issues during the playing of the anthem, uh, including most recently uh, during the trials. And so um, it's it's hard to predict, and that's one of the things 
things that we have to remember about a protest, right? They're not meant to be convenient and we can't schedule them. <laughs> um, and so it, uh, we, we may find that people are finding ways to uh, highlight um, racial injustices and inequities in sports and beyond in ways that we never thought that they would. So it may not be during the anthem. It may be as they are, you know, lining up for a race or it might be before they decide to, you know, in, um, you know, go to the podium or it might be by something that they decide to wear. Uh, and so it remains to be seen um, whether um, the Olympic athletes, black athletes in particular, uh, decide to use this uh, platform in this world stage to draw attention to ongoing racial injustices. The Gwen Berry case is probably less well known so far anyway outside of the US, but I, I've read about this where she's been criticized by politicians from turning away from the flag um, on the podium at Olympic trials. And there's a quote from her when she was asked by a journalist, are you going to do that at the Olympics themselves? She says, it will depend how I'm feeling on the day. So it really will be interesting, particularly in these stadiums where there won't be any spectators. So it's going to have a very different atmosphere from most events these athletes are used to playing at. I was just going to say, I've had the opportunity to speak to some college athletes from different sports. And what was interesting is that they noted that for track and field, because there's so many things going on at one time that they're generally not um, in one place when the, if the anthem is even played at the beginning of a meet. And so it, it would probably be more likely that you might see a protest uh, on the podium because that's actually when an, an athlete might be in one place as the um, um, anthem is being played and there's attention on them. Whereas for other sports like men's basketball, women's basketball, and even, you know, football, for example, um, they're more likely to be together in one place at the playing of the anthem and have attention on them. Does sport have a unifying force? It, it obviously brings together countries, people within a country who identify themselves as English or Italian and when things go well, sometimes it's celebrated that there's a diversity, a racial diversity in those teams. And as we've just discovered, when things go less well, that seems to all fall apart. What, what, what's your view on whether sport can actually bring, and I don't just mean a country, I mean the different parts of that country and the different backgrounds and ethnicities. Is there a unifying force? Sports can have the power to unify a community. It can have the power to unify a nation. It can have the power to unify the world, but it also can be a very dividing force. And we've seen that time and time again. So sports can be used actually to perpetuate myths about certain populations, including a myth about black men and black men athletes or about black women and black women athletes. You're listening to Radio Davos. We'll be back with more from Professor Laurie Martin after this. George Oliver is the CEO and chairman of Johnson Controls, a provider of smart building technology with more than 100,000 staffers worldwide. He talked to Meet the Leader about the role critical infrastructure played in the pandemic as his company shifted nearly overnight to help construct temporary hospitals and isolation rooms. Especially in the last year, it has been everything we do on steroids. He also explained how buildings took on new importance during the pandemic as more people realized that building technologies can help tackle an even bigger problem, the climate. The pandemic, it has accelerated 
or has repositioned buildings and infrastructure in a much more strategic way. He'll share how habits and leadership rhythms are instrumental in complex challenges and the role that routine plays in his own life. Leadership needs to have kind of a rhythm which drives innovation and then ultimately performance. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Learn about all this and more on the next Meet the Leader. You're listening to Radio Davos, where on this episode we're talking about diversity, race and racism in sport. I'm talking to sociology professor Laurie Martin, who says in her book, White Sports, Black Sports, that racism is institutionalised in sport. I asked her what that meant. In the answer you'll hear now, she cites a new story that you may or may not have heard, and that is about the international governing body of the sport of swimming, the FINA, that decided not to allow a newly designed swimming cap that the manufacturers said is made for natural black hair, thick, curly and voluminous hair, as they put it, in international competitions. That means they can't be used, for example, at the Tokyo Olympics. The company that makes them, Solcap, was told that their caps do not follow the natural form of the head, according to a BBC report. I got in touch with the FINA and they said they're reviewing the situation with regards to Solcap and similar products, understanding the importance of inclusivity and representation. But for the moment, they still are not allowed in official competitions. Let's hear from Professor Laurie Martin. Yeah, so as soon as we have, you know, rules and structures and systems in place that and that are uh, race based, then we can see how sports can perpetuate racism. So, for example, there's been a, a lot of attention on some of the rules surrounding swim caps uh, at the uh, Olympics. And so it may appear that, you know, rules about, you know, the types of swim caps that are acceptable are race neutral, as are, you know, various dress codes. They oftentimes will have uh, a negative impact on one particular group uh, relative to another, in part because uh, there may have been changes in participation in the sports, there may be changes in technology, and those things don't necessarily keep up <laughs> with, um, you know, the uh, rules and the structures. And so if you have more Black women or Black people in general, you know, doing well in swimming, for example, and uh, they will can be more successful or compete more equally if they have a particular type of of swim cap and we say well we're just going to ban that because it's not you know part of what's accepted well that has a negative impact on black people and and you know brings up all kinds of issues about perceptions about um what we consider beautiful and desirable and about um stereotypes and uh ways to denigrate black people based upon their hair and hairstyles and so you know these things don't occur in a vacuum so it's important you know to note again all the ways in which the various isms that affect society also affect sports. So what is it, do you think, that makes some sports white and some black? That's a, another great question. I think part of it is the stereotypes that people have about certain groups and thinking about the American context. You tend to assume that, you know, black uh, boys and men excel in sports like basketball that might require more uh, speed and physical agility. And there are some people who still believe that that's rooted in biological uh, differences and that somehow black people, black men in particular, might have a greater propensity 
opportunity to be successful in sports like basketball and football. Um, and similarly, that perhaps Black women are better suited for sports like, you know, track and field than they are for field hockey and lacrosse. But the fact of the matter is we have to really look historically about, you know, policies and procedures and um, to understand that there were times when, you know, Black men couldn't play professional basketball with uh, white men, for example, or where Black women were excluded from playing professional tennis with white women. And so, you know, those things have a, uh, have an effect on the kinds of sports that people play. We know in many minority communities that may also be uh, relatively economically disadvantaged that, you know, they don't have a lot of sports programs. And so you don't find, you know, hockey and you don't find swimming offered in their public schools. You don't find that they're even being introduced to those kinds of sports. So all these things are interconnected and it's not just a matter of people have a biological propensity to be successful in one sport or another. It's far more complicated than that. It's about the opportunity structures, about uh, having access to different facilities. And it's also like with anything, um, it's about who you know. And so someone may be very talented, but if no one ever discovers that talent because they're not playing in an amateur athletic league, for example, or they don't go to a particular elite high school, then no one's ever going to know about their talent. Should we be optimistic that things are improving? You mentioned the 1968 Olympics. Have we come further? And which direction is the pendulum swinging now? You know, what do you take any optimism from anything? So I think that like many people, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I'm a big fan of a former legal scholar, uh, Derek Bell, and his work on racial realism. And Derek Bell, he basically talks about uh, the permanent subordination of Black people in America and calls into question um, efforts to use the courts, for example, to uh, bring about racial uh, equality. Essentially, because um, he makes the case uh, that, you know, historically race has mattered in American society and is always going to matter. And that's something that Black people have to come to terms with. And so he also talks about what he calls peaks of progress. And so those are moments in American history where, you know, there is a tension on social justice issues, on racial inequities, and people are showing a willingness to try to do better and create a more equitable society, like at the end of the Civil War, uh, thinking about during the civil rights movement, for example, after the killing of George Floyd. But sadly, some time may pass and then some folks forget about their commitments to social justice issues, even though Black people and other people of color continue to suffer. So what we may find if history, you know, has taught us anything is that we may find that there are some people who were actively engaged in social justice issues who turn their attention to something else. And it's not not until we have another incident like the killing of George Floyd or some other overt manifestation of racism that the, the nation uh, and the world decides to draw its attention to racial inequities again. Professor Laurie Martin speaking to me from Louisiana State University. As I record this, athletes from all over the world are heading to Tokyo for the 2020 Olympics, delayed for a year just like Euro 2020 by the COVID pandemic. One of those athletes is Nick Delamini, a cyclist who earlier in the summer became the first black South African to ride in the Tour de France. During the tour, he kindly took a moment out of his very busy schedule to speak to Radio Davos, answering questions we sent to his team, put to him by a teammate. The first was, what was the best moment of that race for him so far? The best moment? 
rolling to uh, the opening ceremony, uh, the team presentation. I've watched it on TV and it's a great feeling to be rolling uh, down there on your bike with a lot of spectators. How did you first get into cycling? Uh, a friend of mine used to cycle and um, every day he would tell me um, all the places he'd, he'd explored. And I thought to myself, um, I wanted to see and explore um, beautiful places in Cape Town. And uh, the only way for me to do that was to get a bicycle. And um, yeah, that's basically how I got into cycling. Growing up, did you ever think that um, it was too white a sport for a black person to get involved in? Honestly, no. Um, when I started cycling, there was actually quite a lot of um, black cyclists at the time. Um, you know, there was, especially at Velokaya, they had uh, Lutando, Songhezo Jim, uh, Daniel, Daniel Teglaminat. Um, so was, there was quite a lot of them at the time. Um, yeah. Is it a sport that you want to go on encouraging people from the same background as you to get involved in? Absolutely. I'd love to really encourage a lot of kids in the townships to, you know, to take on cycling. It's, it's a beautiful sport. It's a hard sport. But, you know, I think we really need to have third row talent from townships. And especially with, um, you know, young girls, I think it would really be nice to see black girls in cycling. When you go home, what's the response to you like? When I go home, the, the response is really incredible. But I, I'd imagine now if I go home after now doing the tour and the Olympics, it's it's going to be even more. And I, I really look forward to it. And you know, in, in, in engaging with the, the the development guys now that um, you know I've no, I, I know I've made a big uh, impact in, the, in their lives. So I think it would be uh, really nice for me to to you know go out on a bicycle ride with them and you know and share my experience. Uh, I've experienced in the Tour de France with them. What message do you have for young people around the world who are pursuing the dream of becoming a professional sportsman or sportswoman? You know, my message to, to anyone uh, would be, you know, dream alive. It's never easy doing something you really want to do, but with the right support and the right people around you, there's nothing stopping you to fulfilling your dreams. Nick Delamini. Good luck to him and to everyone else competing at Tokyo. You can find more of our coverage of race and diversity across our social media feeds. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review. Find us at wef.ch slash podcasts and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. My thanks to all our guests, John Amici, Laurie Martin and Nick Delamini. And to my colleagues, Alex Court, Max Hall and Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with another episode of Radio Davos. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.